Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, March 22nd. Arden Swelling, Ben Nicholson Smith, our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And Ben, we are back in the home radio booth at beautiful TD Ballpark here in Dunedin, Florida. I have uh, been here for quite some time. You have returned your first day uh, on, on digital down here as you take kind of the baton for the final stretch of camp. And I guess this, this is actually our final spring podcast, likely, unless we sneak one in next week. Not sure, but either way, we're getting to the finish line here. Yeah, we really are. It's kind of wild. You look at the calendar and it's like, oh, the games start next week. Like the non-Grapefruit League games, the ones that actually count next week in St. Louis, the Blue Jays open the season. So we really are into that final stretch of crunch time for the Jays and crunch time for podcasters and writers as well. <laughs> so we try to bring our, our best podcast as the uh, spring comes to a close here. But no, no promises on that front. I'll miss spring training, man. I know some people can't wait for it to end. Uh, <laughs> chief among them, like the players in the Blue Jays clubhouse right now, and the coaches, and the staff, uh, and the clubbies, and everybody involved who is just itching to get this show on the road. But I, I love spring training. I've been over it before. I'm getting a great opportunity this week where I'm like pulling out of like the daily duty of writing about whoever's starting and whatever the news is. I'm handing that off to you, getting to do some more like kind of bigger picture, featurey type of stuff, writing about guys like Rainer Nunez and writing about guys like Jay Jackson like I just, I love doing stories like that and it's hard to do stories like that in the season and I get it it doesn't have broad appeal people want to know who's going to be the 26th man on the roster who's going to be the opening day starter what about the bullpen we're going to talk about all that stuff in this podcast but I am very much enjoying this last chance to kind of do some of that bigger picture off the beaten path featurey type of stuff because like I live for pieces like that yeah they're fun pieces and I think you know if they're a little bit you know on the edge of our our coverage you know like you say you're you're obviously going to be covering the news of the day first and foremost until someone else is there to kind of um, be overlooking that but in October, you're not even coming close no. to a Rainer Nunez, you know? So like now is like the chance to get in depth on some of those guys. And the reality is that some of these players who are on the edge of the 40 man, maybe off the 40 man at this point, they are going to be big contributors for the Blue Jays this year. And it's going to happen that in big moments, in games that count, when the Jays are trying to, you know, whatever it is, push aside the Rays for the division, push aside the Yankees for a wild card, these players who are on the edges of the team right now will have a say in determining that. Rainer Nunez grew up in Los Mulos, Dominican Republic, playing baseball in the street with a broom handle and balled up socks. Are you kidding me? And then he goes to Nietzsche Academy where like Juan Soto came out of there. Otto Lopez came out of there. Like really cool, very professional environment. And he's playing with all these other 13 and 14 year olds. And uh, you know they're all fighting to make it right and to get off the island. Blue Jays scout him. They see him. He's like six feet, 150, something like that. A shortstop at the time. Ben, you've seen him right now. He is 6'4", 240 today but at the time he was like diminutive shortstop they called him mosquito that's how small he was and the blue jays were like yeah pretty good actions at, at short pretty good defender here's three hundred fifty thousand dollars. maybe you become something someday we're not drafting you for a power profile or anything lo and behold here he is monstrous six four 
240, some of the highest exit velos in this camp, had a 114 mile per hour exit velo ball uh, to walk off a game here in Dundee. And it's the hardest hit ball in Blue Jays camp. Harder hit than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Runners go the 3-2, line to center, on the run and over the outfielder's head, down to win the game. Raider Nunez delivers the walk-off. Swing decision still a little iffy. Discipline still a little iffy. Swings at everything, but like the power is very legit, and he has come out of nowhere to put himself on the map. I love doing stories like that, and I love being down here to do them because I get to talk to like four, five, six different people because they're all down here. So I could talk to Otto Lopez, and I could talk to Andrew Tinnish, I could talk to Guillermo Martinez, and all the people around here who could talk a, a, about him. And maybe they all only provide like one little detail to the story, but that just makes it so much richer and more interesting. And it's just really cool to get to do stuff like that. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And it's it's the time where, you know, there's optimism for all these players, for all of these um, organizations. Rainer Nunez is kind of creating more of that and feeding into that. That was the game that Vlad Jr. left with an injury, right? And then he walked it off. I want to say it was because I remember Rainer Nunez coming off the field in that moment. And you're right. He is a big guy. Like it's kind of it is remarkable. Like I don't know if you ever have this on your phone where like uh, image pops up from like X number of years ago. And it's like, remember when? So I had that the other day for five years ago, and it was a photo of Bo and Vlad. And I was looking at the photo five years ago. You know, for a lot of people, five years, you know, if you're 30 or 40 or 50, you know, chances are your photos don't look so dissimilar. But Bo and Vlad, man, they look a lot different. They are much skinnier. Uh, you know, they've added a lot of muscle since then. Uh, it's remarkable. I'll, I'll tweet it out when we when we share the podcast. But it's, yeah, these guys uh, put on a, a lot of weight and put in a lot of work to get to that point. Bo's 25 and Vlad's 24. Kevin Biggio's like 28, yeah. <laughs> which is funny how we lump them in. But it's funny, right? Because they are very much the core of this uh, vintage, I suppose, of, of the Blue Jays. Or I guess a vintage is one year, so that's not really the right word for it. But this, uh, you know, just the the core of this team that we have watched come together and go through the pandemic seasons, go through 21, where, man, it feels like yesterday, that day at Rogers Center when they missed the postseason by a game. Remember, was it Red Sox and Nationals? Was yep. the it was playing on the the video in board, 21 yeah right and yeah the nationals had like a retirement ceremony in the seventh inning on the field Ryan Zimmerman. <laughs> oh man feels like yesterday that that was we saw them go through that and then we obviously saw them go through 2020 and like the the seattle series and everything that happened there like they're not kids anymore Bowen Vlad and so in that photo that you're referring to like they very much were but like now they really are just like established yeah. major leaguers like I'm hesitant to use the word veteran but like this all kind of comes to mind because I had a conversation with Bo about a week ago about sort of learning about himself at the big league level and like what he learned last September and him talking about yeah like I always knew I was capable of being that kind of hitter at the big leagues I've always been confident don't let anybody ever tell you that Bo Bichette's confidence has ever wavered and he has been doing like remarkable things for a 
very, very long time. Remember that double streak that he went on when he first got yep. to the big leagues? Uh, I mean, he was a teenager hitting bombs at Coors Field when his dad was the hitting coach with the Rockies. He's the guy who, in the draft, was telling teams not to draft him. Almost didn't sign with the Blue Jays because he didn't like their bonus offer and like hung up the phone on them and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. And they had to call him back with more money. And here he is still learning and evolving at the big league level, but also kind of coming into himself and be like, look, I didn't like, I I knew that I could be that player at the big league level who I was last September, 99% of the way, but I hadn't done it. And then I went and done it. And now I 100% of the way understand I can be that player and understand I don't need to go out and worry about my swing decisions and worry about trying to be the player. Everyone sort of like this ideal of this patient hitter. Everyone wants me to be Bobby shuts. Never going to be that guy. He's never going to be that patient hitter. He's never going to be the swing decision guy. Like he's never going to be the three, one count all the time guy. He's going to be aggressive and he's going to be top 10 in swing rate. Like he's, he's going to expand. He's going to look foolish against sliders sometimes, but he's also going to barrel a ton of baseballs and that is just his approach it's aggressive get used to it because he's really bought into it this year you're going to see even more of it pitches oh boy he has given this one a ride to deep left field and no doubt about it Bobichet goes deep and the Blue Jays take a one to nothing lead oh yeah it's it's impressive and there's always you know a little bit of recency bias when we're talking about really anything, but certainly spring training performances and Jose Barrios, who we'll get to, certainly fits into that category. But I think Bo does as well, because, you know, today, as we sit here recording this on Wednesday, I watched Bo take BP this morning, just lasers like, you know, the first swings when a guy steps in and they're kind of supposed to take it to the opposite field. Right. So sometimes you'll see these little, you know, kind of dumped in base hits to the opposite field into right field for a right handed hitter like Bichette. These were just lasers that he's hitting. And then he steps in in the game against the Orioles, hits a home run over the left field fence. Just incredible contact. And, you know, again, recency bias. I acknowledge that. But as he enters his age 25 season, I wouldn't be surprised if he goes out and hits 310 with 30 homers. And and look, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he hits 260 with 18 homers because it's baseball and weird things happen all the time. So I'm not trying to say that that is his destiny is to be a 310 hitter. But honestly, like it truly would not surprise me in the least if that was his season. No, and we get Bo so wrong. We talk so much about his two strike approach. And yes, like it is different, right? He leaves the foot down and he battles a lot more. And like he's almost like more crouched trying to get a better look at the ball. But it's not a good thing when Bo's at two strikes over the course of his career. Bo is a 189 hitter with two strikes, 235 on base, 281 slug with two strikes. In non-two-strike counts, 274 average, 326 on base, 451 slug. Of the 172 extra base hits Bichette has through four big league seasons, 133 have come before a pitcher got a second strike on him. So that is over 75% of his extra base hits have come before, like without two strikes. We talk a lot about that two strike approach and I think we talk too much about it because I think when Bo is at his best, he's not getting near two strikes. You look at that September, October run that he had last year, he saw a two strike count in only 15% of his plate appearances. Like the remaining 85%, when he didn't reach two strikes in September and October, he hit 385, 434, 606 
I mean, that's when he's at his best, when he's being aggressive. And I think that he's learned that. Yeah. And, and I think to some extent that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if you see that and you feel that, then it becomes, OK, I'm going to be so aggressive in these uh, you know, early counts. Then you fall behind. You're in a worse position in two strike counts. Your two strike counts are one, two and oh, two. They're not three, two. Um, so then, you know, you can find yourself sort of repeating that cycle. But whatever, that's fine. I mean, we've seen from Mo Bichette that. It, it doesn't really matter if he's never going to walk a ton. He doesn't have to do that. Not every player does. Some players, you can just get by with exceptional bat-to-ball skills and very good power and speed. And Bichette has all those elements to make him a very, very good offensive player. You mentioned Jose Barrios, who pitched here uh, today. We're recording this on Wednesday after the game in Dunedin. That was the first time we've seen him in a game since uh, the WBC blow-up. He's obviously been working on the side since then through a, a bullpen when he got back to Blue Jays camp. He was actually really smart after that inning plus at WBC to go out to the bullpen there and keep pitching to build up his workload. Imagine in that moment, like the disappointment uh, that he was dealing with, with failing on that stage for his country. It's so important to him pitching for Puerto Rico. Like he talks about it so passionately and he's just coughed up all these runs. He's walking off the mound in front of all these people. And then he goes out to the bullpen to keep doing his work because he's thinking about the regular season. Like, I just think it says something about him. And I think it was a really smart decision of him to do that. I uh, sermonized last podcast about why I thought like that WBC outing was so curious. And I've since written about it at sports.ca. So I won't go back over it. But I mean, we saw him again in a game today. What did you think of, of the returns? I thought it was good. I thought it was a good step forward. He threw 77 pitches. I mean, that's from a bulk standpoint. That's really good. That's kind of where you'd want him to be. And I don't think that we can take that for granted after he was 10 days between outings. It was 10 days ago that he last pitched in that WBC game. So that's a pretty significant distance. Then beyond that, he was able to throw his change up and his curve the way you would normally want to see. His fastball was there. The velo was down a little bit. But most important for Barrios, as we've talked about at length, going back to last year, fastball command, right? And it wasn't there for him as we discussed in that WBC game against the Orioles, it was there. You look at the pitch chart for his forcing fastball. He wasn't leaving fastballs up and over the plate. He did allow some hard contact. He did allow some base hits, a home run to Taron Vavra. Not perfect, but they don't need perfection. They need him to be a major league caliber number three or four starter. And what I saw from him on Wednesday was a very meaningful step in that direction. He was very happy after. So was John Schneider. So it seems like he's kind of back on track after that one outing. See, I disagree with you in that I think he did still leave some four seamers in bad spots, particularly to left-handers. Vavra got him on one. I think John Schneider talked about it after the game that was just like up over the middle away. Uh, there was another one to Bemboom, whoever that is, uh, that the Prios got away with. Like That's where a lot of the damage for me has been coming of late. It's like against those lefties when the four-seamer is just up and away on the plate. If he is like away to the edge or even off with it, arm side, fine. If he is in with it to lefties, which is an important pitch for him, fastball in to lefties with a four-seamer, 
that's fine. It's the one that just like sits and spins on the plate. I think hitters are recognizing that well and getting to it and doing damage. That's where the damage came in WBC. And I think there were still some of those pitches left in bad spots here today. And no doubt. I mean, I'm not saying that he's, you know, pinpoint Greg Maddox control, (laughs) you know, almost every pitcher in the course of a start. Like you're going to make mistake pitches. In fact, even watching Shohei Otani versus Mike Trout in the WBC, Shohei Otani getting Trout middle, middle. And it was 100 miles an hour. So, you know, even Mike Trout is going to miss some middle-middle fastballs. But if you were to look at that pitch location, Otani missed. Like, that was not the ideal pitch location. Of course, he comes back, executes the perfect slider. He's good to go. So I'm not saying that it was, like, literally ideal. But if you look at the pitch chart, upper part of the zone, there was a gap in there where he was not putting the meatiest of the meaty fastballs. (laughs) The meatiest of the meatballs. The thing you want to do is get off of that like flat meatball plane, right? So, and it's interesting. You talk about the misses. You talk to pitchers. They now will tell you about like their miss profiles. And this is something that teams will tell them. Like, this is your miss profile on this pitch because you're right. Every pitcher is going to miss with their pitches. They're not. We give pitchers like way too much credit for their control and command and their ability to locate. A lot of times, like when you're trying to harness this 96, 97 mile per hour weapon, like you're, you're trying to hit a spot, but how reliably can you actually do that? Not super reliably. So you want to figure out where you typically miss and then pitch in areas where your miss profile will lead your miss to be somewhere where it's like, okay, Worst outcome is it's a ball and you got to try to get back into this count. Or if you, if it's a swing, it's going to be fouled off or weak contact. Like Alec Manoa was talking to me about that the other day. He had this cool situation at the Trop in the sixth inning. One out, runner on third, and he had Franco and Lowe coming up, two lefties, and he started them both with sliders in. And we know that Manoa has had trouble with lefties, and I was asking him about his sequencing, and he's like, I know like that slider in, if, if I miss, it's going to miss in. And so I'm just going to get a take and a ball, and that's okay, because if I'm 1-0, I got options and things that I can do. If I go slider away... I might miss over the plate and Wander Franco might park one, right? So he went in with them and he didn't get takes. He actually got swings on both of those and they were both fouled off because like you as a left-handed hitter, when Wild Manoa throws you a slider in, good luck putting that thing in play. Like you're just going to foul it off or swing and miss. That's why it was a great first pitch to both those guys. And then from there, Alec Manoa was able to go like, sinkers off of that slider you know against lefties i mean the change up for manoa is is a huge pitch and he actually ended up getting both those guys to take sinkers inside located called strike three i wrote about it sportsnet.ca manoa was super fired up about it and i went through the sequences it's just very interesting to kind of get into his head and how he's thinking along in those plate appearances jose brios has to kind of do the same thing like with his four seamer against lefties he can't be throwing it in places where his misses are going to be out over the plate. He's got to work absolutely to both sides of the plate with his fastball. And when he's working arm side with his fastball, then he's going to have the change up off of it. And then when he's working glove side, obviously he can have the slider working off of it in that lane. I think that's what the Blue Jays want to see more from him is just like operating in those lanes where he's not going to get hurt when he misses. And he certainly got a lot of practice against Baltimore because the way they lined up their team was five consecutive left-handed hitters to begin the outing and a couple more sprinkled in later. So seven of the nine starters for Baltimore end up being left-handed hitters. And that was an area for Barrios that he really struggled in 2022, allowed an average close to 
300 OPS around 850 against left-handed batters. So in that sense, it's a similar challenge to the one that Manoa faces where these guys are much more effective against right-handed batters, but that's not lost on the opposing teams and opposing managers will in turn stack lefty hitters. So this actually is a really good practice for a guy like Jose Barrios to face hitters who have historically given him the most trouble and he was still able to pitch five innings, get through, um, you know, those five innings with no damage ends up allowing the home run in the sixth. But, you know, still, this is what you want to see from Barrios. And at the same time, is you know we saw the one start in the WBC it went very badly we don't want to read too much into that I'm not going to come out after this start and say like he's completely back it's time to like put him on the all-star team right (laughs) like we still have to remember that those struggles have happened Um, so you know I don't think it's a totally clear path ahead for him but stamina wise he's there he's feeling good that's a good start left-handed hitters against uh, Brios's four-seamer last year hit 381 with a 752 slug. That's not good. 752 would be a high OPS. Yeah. That's the slug alone. That's like prime bonds. That's, that's not what you want to see. No, that's that's rough. So got to be better at the four-seamer against, uh, against lefties. I was encouraged today with what he did against righties in that he was pitching away. If you listen last podcast, I was like baffled at how often he was pitching in to right-handers. I know that's not what uh, the Blue Jays want him doing. He was working away from righties. As the few righties that were in there, he was working away from them uh, well and consistently, I thought. Ultimately, he's got to get to a place where he's working to both sides of the plate, but those away fastballs from righties are important. You saw him make that adjustment today. Yeah, solid outing for Brios all around, and now the Jays can breathe at least slightly easier on that front. Did the Blue Jays tip their hand today when it comes to the opening day starter? And I, I don't know, it was like five podcasts ago now that you and I were like, yep, it's going to be Alec Manoa. We would both start Kevin Gosman, but we both believed it was going to be Alec Manoa. Well, and, and to be very clear, like I, I think that Gosman will have the better season just based off of all the bad luck that he had last year. Oh, right. Your yes. distinction was you would start Alec Manoa yes. in, the, in the opener. Yes. I went with Gosman because I want Gosman having as much opportunity as possible to pitch this year. We'll talk about him a bit yep. later. I have never seen him so locked in. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you that Gosman is going to have the better season. Both of them are going to have really, really good seasons, I think. And if they stay healthy, haul a ton of innings and be all-stars and Cy Young candidates, both of them. But I do wonder if the Blue Jays tip their hand as to which of them is going to start opening day by telling us that Alec Manoa is going to start on Thursday this week, March 23rd, and Kevin Gosman is going to start on Friday, March 24th, when the opening day start is going to be announced. Yeah, I I think we can we can consider their hand tipped and uh, I don't think that anything is going to change, you know, barring the unexpected. That's the way it's going to line up. You don't go through five or six weeks of spring training only to flip flop these guys at the last minute. I mean, it would just be a needless adjustment to their schedules and it would give Manoa just unnecessary amounts of rest. So to me, this essentially spells out what we've kind of been wondering about for a while and That is that Manoa, in all likelihood, will be that starting pitcher for the Jays on opening day in recognition of a 2022 season where he was a Cy Young finalist, had a great season, um, obviously healthy, pitching very well right now in spring training. So, 
I, I think it makes sense. I, I think this is the right call for the Jays to be making, given what he did in 2022. And I'd be really surprised if it turned out a different way. Um, so I think all signs point to Manoa starting opening day and then probably because they're on a 10 game road trip to open the season, probably starts the home opener as well. There is just not a bad choice between the two. Honestly, they both are very, very dialed in. Right now, I mentioned like the effort that Manoa had at the Trop uh, the other day, which was really impressive and cool to watch, and I wrote about that. Uh, and then Kevin Gosman went to Lakeland to face the Detroit Tigers. And like when I say that he was obliterating hitters, like I mean that in the truest sense of the word. Like He was just banishing dudes to the shadow realm like it is stupid how effective he is right now to the point where i feel like he was almost bored out there with how effective his fastball and splitter were he was all he talks about these days is his slider and how much he's enjoying playing around with that and using that as the first pitch and using that to both sides of the plate and what that's doing for his for his game he has a lot of splitters right now that are being registered as change-ups and Stackhouse thinks they're change-ups they're not they're splitters that Kevin Gosman is just toying with his sights on to get to land a bit higher because against the Tigers he was finding like they had that classic if it's high let it fly if it's low let it go game plan against him and he was getting kind of frustrated so he was like all right here's what I'm gonna do I'm just gonna raise my sights and I maybe get my splitter to be a little less nasty and i'm just gonna land it right at the bottom of the zone perfectly like pinpoint perfect how he was landing these things he got one against miggy that was amazing and there's one against maton where like i'm telling you the the reaction from maton was like what the hell man like how are you gonna do that it was just a beautiful beautiful splitter at the bottom of the zone i just kevin gosman is just so dialed in right now he has raised his level in a way that i mean he was already really really good already like cy young worthy stuff just unbelievably bad luck uh last year i I just think that he is right now set up to have a really really fine season one two pitch on the outside corner strike three cold a beautiful pitch from kevin gosman going with the changeup. yeah peaking at a good time if anything almost Speaking a couple of weeks early, it sounds like he's ready for the major league season to start. Um, and that's a great sign for the Jays. I mean, to see him in those environments uh, against hitters, we only saw him make one spring start last season with the abbreviated schedule. Um, but Gosman this time, uh, you know, every time I've seen him, he certainly looked very ready. It sounds like that start against the Tigers. He really reinforced that further. So he'll have one more chance uh, to pitch in a game uh, in the Grapefruit League. And then after that, it's on to the games that count for Gosman, and and he should be a frontline starter for this team. Say the Blue Jays lose two starters in the first week of the regular season to injury. What happens? <laughs> Drew Hutchison is hurt. He's got an oblique issue right now. He's missing a start. Who knows where he's going to be at? Mitch White is uh, going to get up to, what, 45 pitches in a minor league game, or he was supposed to today, actually, here on Wednesday, yep. I believe. So he's supposed to throw 45 pitches in a minor league game. They still want to get him into a big league game. There's still some question as to whether he's actually going to be with the club to open the season or if he begins on the IL to keep getting stretched out. So with those two questionable I mean, what is the starting pitching depth looking like right now? It's super, super thin. It is thin. And I think, you know, for any team, you take away two starting pitchers, you're going to be in a bad spot. That definitely applies to the Jays. I think to answer your question, 
yeah, if you take out Mitch White, I you know, I get the sense Mitch White is trending for the IL to open the season. Um I agree. Yeah. So Hutchison was was sent out. He's still building up. Tiedemann obviously not in major league camp anymore. He was never a candidate to open with the team. To me, the answer is probably Casey Lawrence for one spot and Trent Thornton for another. I mean, Bowden Francis is another guy who's going to be in AAA in all likelihood to open the season. Someone that Jay's like, someone you're you wrote about him already. That's already up on sportsnet.ca. And so, I mean, those are the three names. I think it would be Lawrence and Thornton and then Francis. I'm, am I missing someone? I, that's where I kind of land. I think it would be Casey Lawrence, two trips, and bullpen day would be if yeah. you had two openings, essentially. Because when you talk about Francis, who the Blue Jays like a lot and who I'll get to, uh, when you talk about someone like Thomas Hatch, Trent Thornton, Nate Pearson, those guys aren't true starters in the sense that they're going to give you five, six innings. They are sort of hybrid bulk types where you are looking at two to three innings from them, uh, like a trip and a half through, two trips through if it's going really, really well absolute limit 18 hitters so that it's not like somebody who's gonna go out and even five and dive for you really unless they're like throwing a perfect game you'd have to be looking at bullpen options at that point like even just look at the buffalo bison's rotation with if drew hutchinson isn't ready to start the year like casey lawrence and zach thompson are the only true zach thompson there's another one right is the only they are the only true starters in that rotation otherwise guys like thornton pearson francis are kind of being ticketed for that bulk relief role and that could be to open a game could be two to three innings open a game or it could be like two innings in the fifth and sixth could be towards the end of the game if kind of the score is out of hand but they aren't really true starters in the true sense of the word yeah Absolutely. And so, you know, that creates some interesting dynamics. I do think bullpen day is is a real, you know, possibility should something like that occur. Or if they're in Los Angeles, if they're in Anaheim when this occurs, which is the final leg of that three city trip where they open the season, sometimes it's hard to physically get someone from whatever it is, Scranton, Buffalo to the team. So, you know, that's where you can start looking at a bullpen day. But, you know, hopefully that doesn't happen. It's sort of like asking, you know, what happens if you get to your car and both front tires are slashed? You know, like <laughs> you, you'll be in trouble. You'll, you'll, I don't know, call CAA or something. Hopefully it doesn't happen for you. And, and I think the Jays are hoping the same thing. Put me down as uh, Zach Thompson being a bit of a sleeper this year. Blue Jays have worked on some things with him with cutter location. I think I talked about it a few podcasts ago. Uh, like he might mess around and be like this year's Ross Stripling. Uh, so just like do not be surprised if he is getting a lot of big league outs at, at some point. Uh, Bowden Francis as well as a guy yeah. that like the team is really high on right now. He's throwing 96 here in spring and if you had saw seen him early last year you would have seen like 93 94 and you would have seen a really ugly era in buffalo and a guy who was struggling a ton he got in the lab with blue jays pitching analysts and coaches started working with like the biomechanical folks they hooked him up with all the motion sensor stuff and they they show you on a screen like literally your skeleton and kind of how you are moving yeah. biomechanically uh and what they found was like hey man you are just way too lateral like you're just way too up and down and forward you're not generating as much power as you could be towards second base before you kind of come towards the plate you need to sit back and be more coiled over your back leg they set him up with something called a core velocity belt 
which uh, like the White Sox have used a lot. I think a lot of organizations use it. You can look it up online. It's like a harness you wrap around your hips and there's like a bungee cord attached to it. And then that gets anchored to the ground and essentially just pulls you in one direction and you have to like fight that pull and you just do reps after reps after reps after reps on this thing until the muscle memory is to fight that pull so that you are like staying back even when uh, you don't have the core velocity belt attached like you're just building that muscle memory it's helped out in francis a lot it helped like dylan cease and uh lucas giolito has used it like those guys have gotten a lot out of it so now all of a sudden francis throwing like 96 and he went to puerto rico like dominated there has come out here in spring and is just throwing his fastball like you're not even seeing that many curveballs from him the other day against the yankees uh, he was telling me like the balls were super inconsistent chalky you couldn't get a good feel he was just out there naked with his fastball just kept throwing it to like good yankees hitters and was getting swing and miss got nine whiffs on his fastball and it was 95 96 the blue jays are liking what they're seeing from him right now again he's not going to give you like a six inning start he's going to be a two to three inning sort of bulk relief weapon but he is somebody who's very much on the radar right now and maybe he's not a traditional starter but you know i i have heard from from people i'm sure you have as well um within the blue jays organization who are really pleased with the kind of bullpen depth that they have at triple a where someone like you know like nate pearson let's say that he starts the season in triple a which outside looking in looks like the most realistic situation well could he have five or six really good outings and then be a factor on the major league team and you know with pearson obviously with francis these are guys who have some real velocity um who have the stuff that plays and you know it makes me think of of the wbc and what we saw from some of these pitchers like a roki sasaki who comes in throwing 102 and it's like oh yeah velocity matters so much not that you need the wbc to have that as a reminder because it matters at every level from little league all the way on up but it's it's interesting and you know when you go from not having a ton of it to having more of it all of a sudden you just have more room for error and you can get away with more stuff hayden yinger another name i should throw into that like kind of bulk relief one one and a half trip through type of guys who, who could make an impact this year uh don't read his last name the way that it is written it is hayden yinger i've been saying it wrong for a very long time rhymes with finger yes and right. i actually apologized to him i said i've been saying your name wrong <laughs> forever dude and he was like you're not alone everybody does this so yeah he's another guy who's in that group uh let's step away but when we get back uh what are we going to talk about 13th position player talk a little wbc uh we take a look around the al east i want to give my name the guy who i think we are not talking about enough this camp all that and so much more and we continue on at the letters listen to at the letters ad free on amazon music included with prime It continues on at the letters Arden Swelling, Ben Nicholson Smith. Our producers are Nick Andrade and Christian Ryan. You can email us at the letters at sportsnet.ca. Got an email that we wanted to read here because we wanted to hear from an actual professional on this. Exactly. Uh, of which I very much am not. We we called out for uh, some help and we got some. So uh, here's the email we got from Robin. Uh, Hi, folks. Regarding your comments on the medical response to Edwin Diaz after his injury at the WBC, uh, I am not a kinesiologist, but I am a nurse. I was yelling 
at my TV. The fact that they made him stand up and even attempt to walk when he couldn't bear weight was terrible. And then when they attempted to lift him by the legs, I honestly could not believe what I was watching. The wheelchair at least took the weight off the leg, which is better than anything they had tried to do prior. But having the knee flex at all wasn't ideal. And there really should have been a stretcher or cart on the field to cart him off after someone had assessed the leg what if there had been a fracture that was absolutely insane it is interesting that you mentioned that part of the reason mlb teams are reluctant to send their players to the wbc is because of the substandard care i would never have thought of that until i saw how the team responded in the moment to diaz's injury that was appalling boom confirmed from a medical professional that uh arden your instincts were right uh you may have a future in uh in the baseball uh, medical sphere um or at least you're not going to make the same egregious mistake that they did on the field with edwin diaz so that's great to have that confirmed yeah maybe i overdid it with my kind of couching (laughs) with my deferring uh to expertise but i don't know man the older i get the less certain i am of anything Hmm. and the more i learn the more i realize i know nothing well, the existential questions aside, I, I'm very pleased that Robin was able to <laughs> confirm that for us. I know what you mean, though, too. And I think that, you know, baseball, baseball is definitely a sport where it has been to the benefit of baseball as a whole to outsource a lot of expertise and to seek help from the people who are most uh, proficient in certain areas, whether that's biomechanics, whether that's um, stats. And the game has changed a ton as a result of that. Um, certainly, the better teams are the ones that go out there and try to seek out uh, really good opinions. But sometimes there's nothing wrong with a little bit of common sense as well, which uh, sadly uh, escaped uh, those on the field for that moment. Uh, So common sense tells me, uh, Ben, that there are three teams in the American League East with a legitimate chance to win this division this year. One of them is the Toronto Blue Jays. Another one is the New York Yankees. And the third one is the Tampa Bay Rays. I would put the uh, Baltimore Orioles in fourth, kind of behind that top tier, and then the Red Sox below them. That is the way that I am looking at this division going in to the 2023 season. Where do you fall? Well, I agree with the first part of what you said. And then the second part, I'm a little less certain. The three teams that have the chance to win the division, Rays, Jays, Yankees, 100% agree with you. The Yankees are a force. They brought back Aaron Judge, obviously brought in Rodon. That's a great team. Uh, They won't be as good as they were last year because Aaron Judge is not going to hit 62 home runs every single season, but they will still be a very good team, even with questions at third base and shortstop. Volpe could be up at some point. They can get rid of Donaldson if he's not performing. They have some good problems to figure out in New York and Tampa. I mean, we all know what kind of pitching they have and how Kevin Cash puts together a great lineup with their position players. So, you know, they are a force every single season. Jays too. They're right in that mix. This is a great baseball team. They should be pushing for the AL East this year. I think that part is is pretty clear. But, you know, when I get to the Orioles and Red Sox, I, I guess to start with the Orioles, I just don't think that they did enough this offseason to be a real contender. I, I think they have incredible young talent coming up, not only with Gunnar Henderson, obviously Adley Rushman is right now as we speak, one of the best players in baseball, one of the best catchers in baseball. I think beyond Real Mudo, he's probably the number two, two catcher in the game right now. And so that's a huge starting point. Obviously, you've got guys like Jackson Holiday coming up in the next couple of years and some pitching too. 
but I just don't think they surrounded it with enough talent to scare the Jays. Of course, on any given day, they could beat them, but I see like something would have to go really wrong for the Jays to finish behind Baltimore. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that Baltimore will be still pesky, right? Still yeah. a, like a tough out. They're not bad. Yeah, they're not. You're not rolling over Baltimore like you used to, and I think you saw that last year. You would assume there's going to be some regression from the pitching, like they did so so well uh, on the pitching side with like some pretty underwhelming talent last year. And look, I think the Orioles actually are doing some pretty like uh, cunning things with pitchers and development. Uh, you know, they got a lab up and running. They're doing some cool stuff with grips, and uh, I think that they are kind of like squeezing as much out of the sponge as possible, but like it's still a roster that just needs an influx of raw talent in my opinion i think they should assign carlos correa yeah. uh and and i just think that they are they're just not gonna have the raw talent to compete with those top three teams you got something yeah you know it, and i totally agree on correa i think that would have been a great signing for them especially once things started falling through and i tend to be probably bolder than most front office types when it comes to how much of a team owner's money I would be willing to spend. Uh, I think that probably goes without saying. At the same time, I, I might be a little more conservative than some agents when it comes to what a player might be worth. Um, so, you know, you've put me somewhere in, in between those those two poles of things, but I definitely think the Orioles should have spent. And at the same time, you can look at Baltimore and say, all right, they are operating in a disciplined way. They are not trying to jump the gun recklessly. They are not going to spend money that, you know, as a, let's call them a mid to small market team, they don't want to spend money that's going to be bad in three, four years when they're maybe at their the height of their powers. And discipline, I mean, ask the, the Guardians, ask the Dodgers even, ask the Rays. Discipline as a front office can be a real asset. The Orioles are showing that, but I think their major league team suffers as a result in 2023. Well, from their perspective, they're looking up at three behemoths right now. Uh, right. So you, we often have talked about this, like in the context of the Blue Jays and what they have to do to overcome, like the Yankees, who obviously like, spend a ton and have amazing talent and the Rays who do things with like a level of ingenuity that is kind of like the creates jealousy across front offices, across MLB. And we think, wow, like the Blue Jays have to slay these two dragons. Well, the Orioles actually have to slay three. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, maybe there is something there with the discipline aspect. Exactly. It was interesting, just as a quick aside, to see Aaron Judge mentioning the Blue Jays facility as something that the Yankees are now going to try to uh, try to match um, as they do some renovations. So absolutely, the Yankees, I mean, they're the New York Yankees. They're a brand that goes beyond baseball. But the Jays, uh, yeah, it would be scary to go up against the Blue Jays. I think the Blue Jays are the most well-rounded and balanced team uh, in the division. And I don't think you worry so much about them, like losing a contributor on the offensive side. Like I think they could actually withstand like a Matt Chapman injury or like even like the Vladdy injury, right? Like Vladdy would be the highest projected blue Jay, no matter the system that you look at. And if he had missed a month or two with that knee thing, I honestly think they could have survived. Like their ceiling would come down obviously, but I still think they would have a really solid floor as an offensive team. It's the starting pitching depth that really concerns you with the club right now. We were talking about it like six weeks ago and I was like, Hey, go grab Mike Miner, Dylan Bundy or Chris Archer. It's almost too late now because you're a week away from the start of the regular season and who knows where those guys are at in terms of workloads and buildups, right? Like the, you bring those guys in now and it would take some time for them to get 
built up. So clearly the Blue Jays feel okay about their starting pitching depth or they feel okay about their ability to like move a Ryu or a Green to the 60 in a week and pick up a starting pitcher that finds himself on waivers at the end of camp and try to get that guy to Buffalo. Uh, or they just feel really good about like where Mitch White's going to be at when the season starts. So they like the Zach Thompson adjustments, but that still is like a very real area of concern for me. Whereas I think like the Yankees have some real pitching depth, a ton of talent, as you mentioned, like some really good players um like coming up through their system they still draft and develop and like internationally sign players at a very elite level and oh by the way every year the yankees get some like crazy veteran bounce back situation right Matt Carpenter is a perfect example. So just wait until it's the all-star break and you look up and Willie Calhoun has like 20 bombs Yeah, <laughs> like that. That day is is coming. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think the Yankees can be right there. And then the Rays, man, like the, the secret sauce with the Rays is they just follow like the process. Like they just follow the system. They have a system for how they construct their lineups, for how they deploy their bullpen, for how they use starters. And they follow it for a T, which you can do when you don't have any like big high priced free agents on your team, right? Like you sign a George Springer, George Springer's got to lead off for you every day because he's George friggin' Springer, even <laughs> though your model might say it's better to lead off somebody else and George Springer yeah. might be hit better hitting somewhere else in the batting order. The race don't care. The race, the race like, what does the model say tonight against X starting pitcher for Y team and the bullpen arms might come from them. Okay. That's how we're sorting our lineup. And Kevin cash is completely bought in and the players are all like zero to three or early in ARB. So don't really have a ton of say in, in that type of stuff. And so the Rays just follow that model and that helps them win more games over a long period of time because, oh, hey, some of these systems, some of these quote unquote analytics, some of this information actually does work when you apply it correctly. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt about that. The Rays are living proof. I think, you know, we're in the process now of making our predictions for sportsnet.ca's uh, season preview coverage. And I haven't landed on who I'm going to pick for the American League East, but it could easily be one of those, it, it, like any one of those three teams. You know, I just don't know which. Like, end of the, like, do you have a clear one? Do you have one that jumps ahead of the others? Yeah, I'm picking the Jays. You're picking the Jays. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a fair choice. I think the Rays or Yankees could equally be there. I think the Red Sox, I mean, to me, this is a group, when I look at them up the middle, I'm just underwhelmed. And I think, you know, watching Yoshida in the WBC, I'm kind of like, this guy's legit. Like, that looks like if the Red Sox and they signed him, don't have it in front of me, I want to say 80. Was it 90? There was people in the industry who were blown away by that. 85 million? People were shocked by that. I'm sure you had the same conversation. Yeah, people were very surprised. There were some estimates that came in tens of millions lower than that. But to me, looking at Yoshida, I think that's a great deal at this moment, knowing what we know now. Based off of 25 WBC plate appearances. This guy looks legit. I think <laughs> it's the smallest sample of small samples. I'm here to react, Arden. This is the time for a reason. I'll leave the reason takes to the race. We got to we gotta spice things up here and, and overreact to um, some small samples. So five yeah. years, $90 million. Yeah. He's 29 years old. He's going to turn 30 this year. I like it. I really like that deal for the Red Sox. It's to be fair. It's not just the plate appearances. I've looked at the projections. You look at Zips. Zips loves what you have for Yoshida projecting. I have the fan graphs depth chart in front of me. 302 projection for average. 379 OBP. 484 slug. Gotta love it. To me, that's a great deal. But 
I actually don't like the Red Sox as a team despite <laughs> this because up the middle, you've got Kike Hernandez playing shortstop. You've got second base Christian Arroyo. You've got Adam Duvall in center field. And behind the plate, you've got Reese McGuire, who was number four on the Blue Jays catching depth chart like two years ago. I just I don't see that team as being strong enough up the middle to be a serious contender for the division. Projection systems can be a little wonky when it's dealing with either minor leaguers or foreign stats. <laughs> it's, we're not locking it in. Uh, but no, I'm I'm going to like uh, side with you here because I'm looking at it and all the projection systems are like 137 WRC plus 138. Steamer has them 139. Yep. If the Red Sox get 139 WRC plus out of them, I mean, you're over the moon. Thrilled. Uh, so we'll, we, we shall see. Uh, as far as just focusing in on the Blue Jays, I mean, there hasn't been a ton of camp battles. I'm like fatigued of even talking about these things. But 13th position player on the roster, the guy who's not going to play, the guy who you're never going to see in a meaningful moment, <laughs> the guy who last year was Bradley Zimmer and was on the roster like all year long and ended up with like 75 plate appearances. Otto Lopez clearly has the inside track we saw him back from the wbc past the little groin issue that he had there playing here today at td ballpark on wednesday we talked about him last week and some of the character stuff the makeup stuff the blue jays really like about him um it's funny in reporting the nunez story i actually talked to Otto about the nietzsche academy where rainer nunez came out of and like Otto like came out of the nietzsche academy as well and that's where a lot of like that discipline was instilled and that hard work was instilled he was telling me like some of the stories i was telling last week about him getting the weight room super early um you know so he wasn't working out when the starters were working out he was doing that at nietzsche academy he was waking up at five in the morning to go work out before like the sodos and the like the prime prospects were going to work out he wanted to be in the weight room and out before like the legit dudes were in there so he was working out waking up crack of the morning and this is at an academy where these guys play baseball all day long like that is just the atmosphere there in the environment so it really says something about his work ethic and about why the blue jays like the character and the teammate that he is and like why he has that inside track for the 13th position player spot on this roster in my opinion are you there as well or, or are there some other names we're overlooking no i'm with you i mean i, I think Otto lopez is the favorite i think he should be the favorite i think the other ones are nathan lucas and vinnie capra we have some familiarity with them, some utility, some versatility. You know, those guys are clearly on the radar. And I think the Jays don't want to cross them off because, A, you're not going to hand it over to Otto Lopez on a silver platter with a week to go. And then, B, you know, what happens if George Springer pulls something or, you know, you never know what's going to happen in the course of these final eight days. Of course, everyone with the Jays now crossing fingers, knocking on wood, trying to make sure that, you know, nothing bad happens in that last week but those guys are in the mix and preparing as though they are competing and as though they're they're ready to play major league baseball games uh, because you never know what could happen but i think lopez is the front runner i'm still like surveying the league right now looking at the edges of 40-man rosters who's out of options still got my eye on christian pache nice this is a guy who might 
shake loose. I'll throw two other alternatives out there at you. Uh, one of them is pretty unrealistic, I think, and that's Edmundo Sosa, who I think is likely to make the Phillies bench, but he like he's out of options, and the Phillies have to make a decision there. Uh, Edmundo Sosa put up a 114.6 max exit velo in 2021, which is legit and the outs above average and the sprint speed are both like super high through the roof play like anywhere on the infield for you can play outfield corners right-handed bat be an interesting guy if he shook loose i would be surprised if he did the one that's like maybe a little more realistic mauricio dubon with uh with houston uh who is a guy who might actually like not make their their roster and might end up um just being a guy who's on waivers because he's out of options he's already bounced around a few different organizations he was with milwaukee he was with san francisco another guy who like not as much of an offensive force but like outs above average like grades him very highly good sprint speed good arm strength he can play center field for you he can play up the middle in the infield right-handed hitter those are the kind of guys that I'm looking for for that spot is like loud tools because it's not you're not going to play. Right. So I, I think Otto Lopez is a fine you know fit for it. But for me, I'm looking for like that Zimmer type who has huge tools who can impact the game in a very big way late. So whether that's with your speed, whether that's with your defense at premium positions, I am still looking around at my Sosa's, my Dubon's, my Christian Pache's, who's obviously a tremendous defender and big arm strength. I'm looking around at those guys. If any of them end up on waivers at the end of spring training, I'm just building out my depth. Otto Lopez can start at AAA. It's fine. As can Nathan Lucas. He has options too. Like you can maintain your depth. You're get, Lucas is going to get big league playing time. Lopez is going to get big league playing time. If I can bring in a Pache, a Dubon, a Sosa, uh, and just build out my depth and carry one of those guys for the first few weeks, that's a very tantalizing thing for me if I'm the Blue Jays. Well, the uh, At The Letters Pro Scouting Department, hard at work here. <laughs> As Arden goes through the uh, depth charts and finds some uh, some names. I guess you're the uh, ATL Director of Pro Scouting, um, as well as the other responsibilities uh, that you uh, cover any, off. I don't think I'm giving any actual pro scouts a run for their money. Well, we'll see about that. When Edmundo Sosa comes up with a big game-winning hit in the ALCS, we'll, we'll know... Uh, who, who came up with it first. But yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, when you're talking about tools, Otto Lopez, best tool, you know, he's he's obviously pretty good bat-to-ball hitter. So that's something real there. And he's also pretty fast. I mean, you could pinch run if Kirk's on base late in the game, if Belt's on base late in the game. You could use him um, in a way that you're not going to use Santiago Espinal. Espinal obviously has the glove, um, but Lopez brings some of those things, but it makes sense to be scouring the waiver wire just in case someone else brings a different combination, potentially a better one. And the thing you like about uh, Lopez is he's just a worker. Like he went and saw a private hitting coach over the winter who helped him get some more line drive contact in his swing. I talked about that last week. Like it's something he's been working on. We saw it show up at the WBC. It's shown a little bit in games here at spring. Like it's a huge thing for him just getting the ball off the ground because the ball was on the ground so much last year and he still hit 300 in the minor leagues. Like he's got wheels right and he can move and uh the contact ability like allows him to stay in plate appearances he's gonna force if he's starting which he rarely would be with the blue jays but triple a he'd be starting he forces the opposition starting pitcher to throw more pitches because he's just pesky and he fouls stuff off and that wears a guy down right so somebody who can come in and kind of give you that like persistent um annoying plate approach even if he isn't much of a power threat there is something there like you said we'll see how it plays out 
Yeah, still a little bit of time to make those final impressions for the Jays here, and we'll see. I mean, it would be a big development for someone like Lopez. Any of these guys, really, would be their first opening day roster with the Jays. And as always, I mean, we'll see how long it lasts because with these players who are at the very back of the 26-man roster, sometimes your placement there is... uh, held on to rather weakly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll see where all of that develops. Final thing I want to get to. This is my guy that we are not talking about enough in Blue Jays camp, which is uh, incredible because, uh, you know, and in some places we talk about this team every day, all day long. We are not talking enough about Jay Jackson. Jay Jackson is legit. Like he has been lights out this spring hasn't given up an earned run yet. Tons of swing and strikes, a bunch of strikeouts. He's filling up the zone. And you just look at this guy's career. Uh, you look at like the recent history over the last two seasons. It's a 121 ERA plus at the big league level over 25 appearances at triple a. It's a 187 ERA with a 38% strikeout rate and a 4% walk rate. So like tremendous level numbers at very high levels the last two years. He has been injured at times. Last year, he had a lot issue. The year before that, he tore his hamstring in spring training. So he's really like both of his, each of his last two seasons have only really been half season samples. But when he's been healthy, he's been tremendous. And his stuff is legit. The fastball is like 95, 96. Like there's a lot in there. And it's not even his primary pitch. His primary pitch is his slider, which gets a ton of swing and miss. He's going to throw it like 65% of the time. He can make it flatter. He can give it more depth. He's one of those guys who can kind of toy with the grips on it and throw it differently, land it for strikes, get guys to expand with it. Every team he goes to does the Anthony Bass thing and is like, you don't throw your best pitch enough. You need to throw your slider like 75% of the time. Like teams just want him to spam sliders, analytically minded teams. Remember we talked to Anthony Bass about that in New York and Bass was like, I didn't want to give up my fastball Uh, because you have to like get over that hurdle, right? Of being like, okay, I'm the spam slider guy. A lot of guys don't like doing that. I don't think that Jay Jackson wants to be that guy either. And I think that he throws 95, 96, so he doesn't have to be. Because uh, And there's two fastballs, by the way. There's a four-seamer and a two-seamer as well. So like, there's tools here. There's recent track record. There's a history of pitching at really high leverage. In Japan, this guy was getting like crazy amounts of holds. This guy was facing massive, massive leverage in NPB, where he pitched for four years. Had a little bit of a, a, a Japan stage, if you will, in between stints with big league clubs. This is a guy who's closed in the minors um he's pitched in like japan series games caribbean series games face shohei otani in a japan series like has been on really big stages isn't rattled by anything isn't scared by anything is pitching really well in this camp and he is a guy who i feel like we're gonna look up in august and be like oh jay jackson has like 20 appearances for the blue jays right now and none of us talked about him in spring yeah well, thankfully, we've now rectified that part of it <laughs> where uh, we're definitely covering them off. I, th- I think that, you know, uh, you've obviously dived uh, deeper into this than I have. But I, it's funny, I've, I have been asking around about, you know, who's standing out, who, you know, of course, um, should I be keeping an eye on at this point? His name has come up a couple times from an executive, from a player, just as as a guy to to really watch. And, you know, you look at the stuff, like you said, you look at his brief major league time. He has struck out with 32% of the hitters he's ever faced in the major leagues. That's well above average. 20, 21, 22% would be the average in a given year for 
uh, your your league rate. Uh, so he's way above that ten percentage points, and and that's what you like to see if you're the Jays. So it's really interesting. He's not going to make the opening day roster, but someone who could emerge and, like you said, really be one of those players that we haven't talked about in proportion to the impact that he will have. And he had options. Like, he didn't have to come here. He had half a dozen teams reach out to him right at the beginning of free agency, the Blue Jays being one of them. Blue Jays reached out to him, like, right away when free agency opened. And Jay Jackson kind of slow played it. He had a half dozen options. I'm sure he could have gone back and pitched internationally again because he's got great relationships over there and has proven himself in those leagues and is obviously still good. And he got to January, and Jay Jackson was like, I'm 35. I've pitched in Japan, in Mexico. I've been to Venezuela. I've pitched in the U.S. I've been like with the like this will be his ninth MLB organization I'm ring chasing I don't care like Jay Jackson could go to the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Kansas City Royals and be on their opening day roster and probably have like 60 appearances out of their bullpen well actually he would have 40 appearances until the end of July when they would trade him somewhere but like he could go and like get his service and be on charters and fly around and per diem and all that stuff He's not doing that. He's going to start at AAA with the Blue Jays because he's ring chasing because he wants to win a World Series. It's like the only thing not on his resume. Look up his baseball reference page. This guy has done everything. He's been doing this for a few years. Last year with Atlanta, the Braves bullpen last year was like nuclear. It was impossible to crack that bullpen. Uh, And Jay Jackson actually did make his way to the big leagues with them at one point. But similar situation. Wanted to win a ring. Year before that, San Francisco Giants, who had, again, like a the one of the best bullpens in baseball uh, in 2021. Jay Jackson made 23 appearances for them. As you said, struck out a bunch of dudes. is really effective. He's a really good pitcher. I think that he's going to be this year's David Phelps, where last spring we didn't talk about David Phelps at all, unless you listened to this podcast and you heard us say that, hey, David Phelps is going to be on this team. Uh, and I think he's going to be that guy that we don't talk about at all who – we look up midseason and are like, oh, he's actually been a real contributor. Nice. That's a that's a bold prediction, a deep cut on ATL. And yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I mean, I, I think everything you said there makes sense. Okay, that's going to be it for us. He is Ben Nicholson-Smith, and my name is Arden Zwelling. We thank you, as always, for listening. You can email us at the letters at sportsnet.ca. I want to thank our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade, and Amal Delich as well for overseeing all this. And I really want to thank you for listening. It means a lot. I want to thank you whenever you reach out, whenever you stop us at the ballpark and say hi. It really is meaningful. We love hearing from you hope you're enjoying the podcast so far can't wait to get the regular season going but until next time this has been at the letters